What is up, guys? This is Stan R. Mitchell, and this is the July 26th edition of The View from the Front. Uh, for those who are newer or don't know, every Tuesday and Friday, I discuss military and defense news, as well as a little bit of history, motivation, and wisdom. And I do all of this from the moderate perspective. Uh, quick reminder, Tuesday posts are available to everyone, but they're delayed by one day, unless you're a paid subscriber. Uh, that's just something to try to encourage folks to support what we're doing here if they can. But it also doesn't really penalize you if you can't make the $5 a month payment. At most, you're waiting just an extra day. Uh, but again, if you can't subscribe, that's great. If you, if not, no big deal. We're glad to have you here. And um, with that out of the way, let's uh, let's get into today's edition. For today, I wanted to actually start this edition with a bit of an update on China versus Ukraine this time. Um, everyone who's been following me for the past year knows that China is something that comes up. It's kind of the the big thing that, I don't know, it's almost like they're the big guy on the street and we're the other big guy on the street. And um, we are kind of approaching each other and increasingly um, people are worried that how is this going to play out? Because at some point something's going to play out. So I wanted to start with that this week uh, because Ukraine and the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been pushing that back. So there are a couple of things that really bring China back into focus that made me say, you know what, we really need to get into it for this edition. Um, although, honestly, if we're being totally transparent, I wanted to cover this in Friday's edition and I started it. But uh, as you, you all probably picked up who heard the last edition, I had to catch a flight and time got by a little faster on me than I thought. So I, I ended up having to cut all that out. So you're going to get it today. So the... The item that brings China back into the, the first item, at least, that brings it kind of back into focus is that about a month ago, um, NBC News reported, and of course it was in all of the news, but that the FBI director um, brought up the possibility that China might be inching closer to an invasion of Taiwan. Uh, and the FBI director noted that Beijing or, or China had been taking steps to shield its economy from sanctions that would come from such a move. The FBI director is a gentleman named uh, Christopher Wray. Uh, he was actually appointed under Donald Trump. So he's been there for, uh, you know, more than one administration. And uh, that's pretty common for most FBI directors, except maybe in the past few years because our politics got a little crazy. But at any rate, uh, the FBI director was in um, Britain and he stood next to the director of Britain's MI5, which is the United Kingdom's uh, domestic intelligence agency. I'm sure from the movies you all have heard of MI6. Well, MI5 is the ones that uh, they do the internal uh, security and spying, etc., making sure that the country's safe. Um, but standing next to the director of MI5, Christopher Ray, our FBI director, was saying that you know China is definitely taking steps to protect its economy following an attack or an invasion. He was quoted in NBC News as saying, "In our world, we call that kind of behavior a clue." Uh, and he said that if some type of an attack or an invasion were to happen, it would, rep quote, represent one of the most horrific business disruptions the world has ever seen, end quote. So the first point that brings us to China is a few weeks ago, you've got the FBI director saying he's seeing intelligence that China is beginning to make some moves to protect its economy. And, oh, by the way, he makes this comment on foreign soil next to one of America's staunchest allies. And to me, that's no accident. So at the same time, we need to revisit the news as kind of the second item that's bringing this all to head, 
from a week ago when I talked about House Speaker Nancy Pelosi may be visiting Taiwan. We talked about that in the July 19th edition. And as I mentioned then, Pelosi would be the first House Speaker to visit Taiwan, the island of Taiwan, which China wants to take back, which China claims is it. But uh, Pelosi would be the first to speak or first House Speaker to visit since Speaker Newt Gingrich did back in 1997. But in the week that's passed since that news broke, there's been a lot of increasing pressure for Pelosi not to visit. Uh, this includes pressure from President Joe Biden and members of America's highest military staff, which the Washington Post reported on. Uh, hat tip to uh, Derek Grossman for sharing this. Uh, but the uh, Washington Post in that story said, let me get to that, that President Biden himself uh, in talking to reporters, said that, quote, the military thinks it's not a good idea right now, end quote, that Speaker Pelosi traveled to Taiwan. Uh, the article talked about that distrust between America and China is at its highest level and that China has increasingly been aggressive in recent encounters with the United States and allied military forces in the region. Uh, that was kind of a generic way of saying what they're really talking about is that there have been increasing um, flights of uh, Chinese aircraft that have intruded on uh, some of the disputed territory of uh, Taiwan, which every time they send in, you know, China sends in 30 fighters, then Taiwan has to scramble fighters. It's a kind of a threatening gesture. It's also something to try to basically get Taiwan to lower its guard so that if any kind of attack ever did happen, Taiwan might think, hey, this is just another silly fake incursion. Maybe they wouldn't scramble as many fighters. So China's been doing this over the past few months, um, seemingly in a possibly increasing number of uh, larger numbers of both fighters and more frequency. So that's been raising a little bit of alarm bells on that front. And so Speaker Pelosi wanting to visit, you know, is... Obviously, President Biden and our senior military staff think that probably isn't going to help calm things down, and it might actually escalate things a bit. But while the president and um, some of the military are saying, hey, Speaker Pelosi, maybe you shouldn't do this, there's already the flip side. And you can already see that you know the president and Speaker Pelosi are already being boxed in by you know folks on the other side of the aisle who say we shouldn't back down from China. And just one good example is the tweet below. And I, should, I said folks from the other side of the aisle, there are Democrats who think she shouldn't back down either, clearly. And clearly she's wanting to go. So, um, but as just one example, um, Republican Senator Ben Sass said, quote, Speaker Pelosi should go to Taiwan and President Biden should make it abundantly clear to Chairman Xi that there's not a damn thing that the Chinese Communist Party can do about it. So that was probably the strongest tweet I saw out there from the other side. But it's not even, uh, you know, the people who are throwing hard right hand haymakers. Um, there was even an interview on CNN from uh, uh, Brianna Keller that included a interview with Secretary of Defense uh, Mark Esper, the former Secretary of Defense. He served under uh, former President Donald Trump. But, uh, you know, I think. Folks on the right probably see him kind of as a moderate, and I think folks on the left probably see him as a moderate as well. But uh, he said in that interview that he doesn't think China should, quote, have any say over where American official, officials travel. And I think if the speaker wants to go, she should go, end quote. So I've linked to that interview as well. So 
it's now that this has all come up, it's kind of hard to be like, well, maybe she's going to change her plans because if she does, at this point, it's going to look like we're backing down. And probably at some point, just because, um, you know, President Joe Biden has taken a lot of flack for at times looking weak, there's probably at some point he will potentially just say, you know what, she's going to go because I don't think he wants to take another hit for uh, looking weak on the uh, foreign stage. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but the bigger point that that brings up is, you know, will China eventually invade as the FBI director says they're potentially pre preparing to do? And if so, when? And on that, like, literally impossible set of questions, because no one truly knows this answer. It's like trying to say who's going to win the Super Bowl, uh, even when you're down to two teams where football's completely unpredictable, and so is often foreign policy. A lot of people think it will happen. There are people that say that it may never happen. But anyway, on that impossible question, I thought I'd share a couple of things. First is an excellent column by Derek Grossman, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, Grossman, who served over a decade in the intelligence community. He's also a senior defense analyst currently at the RAND Corporation, and he focuses on national security and Indo-Pacific security issues. He wrote an incredible column in, the, uh, in a Japanese newspaper that says Taiwan should be safe until 2027 unless one specific thing happens. But first, let me just kind of explain what he said. Um, the full column is free to read, and if you really dig China issues and you want to get into the weeds on this, you should totally check it out. Um, but he goes a bit into the history of the issue, and, uh, and he says that Taiwan has six years before it's invaded, if you believe the outgoing commander of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, who was Admiral Philip Davidson. Davidson stated in March during an open congressional testimony that China might invade in 2027, which is obviously, you know, we're down to six, five, six years from now, since that is apparently the 100th anniversary of the founding of China's People's Liberation Army. Obviously, the idea is that it would be the 100th anniversary of the founding of China's military. And so, you know, that what better way to celebrate 100 years than to uh, achieve some, a goal that China's had for a long time, which they call reunification often. Um, they wouldn't obviously call this an invasion. They call it as basically bringing back a, a um, you know, insubordinate states or province back under its control. So um, in open, obviously in open con congressional uh, testimony, a prior commander said 2027. So Grossman takes that and then um, he obviously points out the unprecedented number of warplanes that are flying aggressively near Taiwan. but he looks at the historical um, time frame and he makes something, uh, a point I hadn't even considered, which is that China is not as aggressive as it was in the 90s. Uh, and he uses as just one example, the uh, what it was called the Taiwan Strait Crisis in 1995 to 1996, when China actually launched ballistic missiles near Taiwan, which is something that China hasn't done since then. And so he makes the argument that Really, these plane, these uh, military flights are, you know, somewhat aggressive, but they're not nearly as as aggressive as fly, uh, firing missiles toward a a, uh, a province or country or island. All of that gets really heated over what to call Taiwan. But at any rate, firing missiles at it way worse than uh, just planes flying near it. 
one other thing that Grossman goes into is that um, he talks about how Taiwan isn't being mentioned enough in speeches and propaganda um, that Chinese officials are doing to the people. And uh, he thinks that, you know, if, if an invasion was, you know, about to happen, those would be something that would be ramping up significantly so that, you know, you can rally the country and um, get them ready and, and behind an invasion, which is, if you recall, is exactly what um, Putin did with Russia before he invaded Ukraine. He started making all kinds of false claims about Ukraine, that there were Nazis there, that Ukraine might even attack Russia, that Ukraine might do something to some of the Russian citizens in its country. And so he used all that to stoke the fires and the flames of, uh, you know, to get the people angry and to get them so to the point where they would support a war. Finally, one other big point that he gets that he gets across that, you know, confirms in his mind that China is safe until at least 2027 is that uh, China has all kinds of um, serious challenges with their Navy as far as amphibious landings, which, you know, you don't have to know a lot about history to know that amphibious landings are incredibly challenging whether it's D-Day in Normandy, all of the island campaigns the Marine Corps had to do during World War II, these took literally decades of basically hard lessons learned. You have to load ships a certain way. There's a lot that goes into it, and it's not easy to do. It's something the Marine Corps and the Navy to this day continues to practice and to, per to perfect. And China has, while it's been growing its Navy, it's a very, um, it's a very, I don't know how to say it. I don't say amateur, but it's a very new Navy. It's a very, it has limited history in um, operations that are very far from China. They're obviously, um, you know, trying to launch carriers. There's a lot that goes into anyone who studied naval history of World War II. There is a lot to go in that goes into carrier operations and which planes are loaded for defense and offense and what they're carrying. And there's, there's just a lot to it. And you, you don't get, you know, good at naval operations overnight. So he brings up that fact. He brings up um, a few of the points of that fact. But anyone who's kept up with China's military knows that while it is making, you know, serious strides in the naval um, spectrum, it's still got a long ways to go. Uh, but he does bring up that while all of this is the case, there's one huge caveat to his prediction. So the hu he ends by saying that there's one huge caveat to the fact that Taiwan is safe until 2027. And that is that um, should Taiwan elect someone who's seriously anti-China as a candidate to the presidency, then China might act. Um, and lo and behold, you know, Taiwan does have a current and tremendously popular vice president who could push China toward an attack if he were to continue his rise to power. That was the gist of the um, point that Grossman was making. So it's a great column. Again, I've linked to it in the show notes. Definitely go take a look if you have a moment. Um, but besides an all-out invasion, there's something else that could happen. Actually, there's probably a hundred different something else's, um, maybe almost an infinite number. But, um, and so it isn't just an attack or an all-out invasion. There, there could be something else. So this point is brought up by Hal Brands. He's a professor of global affairs at Johns Hopkins uh, School of Advanced International Studies. He's also a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. 
and he writes that a clash or crisis is more than due for the United States and China. Uh, Brands wrote a uh, fantastic Twitter thread on this, and uh, he was generous enough to say that I could share it in its entirety, so um, I I may do the whole thing, but I'll start with just kind of what he says, and we'll see how far we go into this. Uh, But he says, all the hubbub surrounding uh, Pelosi's potential trip to Taiwan is making one thing very clear. We are, alas, probably overdue for a major political military crisis in U.S.-China relations. Not a crisis over trade or COVID or someone else's war, as in the case of Ukraine, but crisis that begins two sides, but crisis that brings two sides face to face in an area where both have highly important, perhaps vital security interests. And whether that happens over Pelosi's visit or something else, Taiwan is is the likely focal point because it is where the two sides' security interests most directly conflict. Uh, it is also where Beijing, Beijing feels that its military leverage is increasing, but worries that its political leverage is decreasing due to changes in Taiwanese public opinion and Taipei's tightening relations with Washington and other countries. That is a recipe. Uh, that is a recipe for assertive behavior. If and when the crisis comes, it will reveal a lot about the competition, how the two sides perceive their relative strength or weakness how willing they are to take risks, how capable they are of managing and de-escalating potentially dangerous tensions. Uh, Crises tend to be both terrifying and clarifying. Such a crisis will also reveal whether the U.S. can manage more than one major global security crisis at at a given time. In sum, we are entering what is likely to be a very fraught period in the U.S.-China relationship. I doubt, unfortunately, that it will end anytime soon. So that is a terrific thread that kind of lays out um, what I think is a very likely scenario, which is that um, China and America, we're going to bump elbows soon, and we're going to be on the world stage when it happens. There's going to be a lot at stake, and neither side is going to want to back down. And um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And um, both sides, you know, have a lot on the a lot on the table, and Neither side is going to want to back down when this happens. It reminded me, actually, that you know something like this happened in 2001 when, just to refresh everyone's memory, we had a spy plane um, flying near an island in China. Two Chinese jets fly up to intercept it and perhaps harass it. While they're harassing, and the U.S. claims this was in you know international airspace, um, that there's a collision that happens. Um, our plane is damaged. It has to do an emergency landing on Chinese land, um, basically to save the crew. The Chinese fighter went down. The pilot was never found. He was considered lost and, and presumably dead. But because of this, our plane and um, it was 20 plus. Let me see what the facts were real quick. There were 24 crew members were detained by Chinese authorities and interrogated. And at the time, this was uh, the president was George Bush. He was wanting to appear strong. This was before September 11th, but, uh, you know, essentially China had 24 American prisoners and they weren't letting them go. And while they're doing this, they're, they have our plane, one of the most high tech, um, planes that we have. And they're basically taking it apart and learning everything they can about it. And I remember just being furious at the time and just 
so angry that they had these American service members. I had actually just gotten off military, off active duty in 1999. So this is, you know, two years after I was out and, um, I was still had a lot of friends in and all of both myself and all of my friends were just, you know, just ready to fight over the fact that they had taken these folks, um, you know, as prisoner, I almost said hostage, but they're, they were technically, I guess, prisoners. But in the end, after a lot of uh, back and forth and growing tensions, both sides kind of least released this very um, ambiguous, barely worded statement where neither claimed fault, neither blamed the other, blah, blah, blah. And essentially, there there was not a lot of agreement. There was a lot of tension, and it got pretty ugly for a short time. So that was the last time that I can recall, at least in the past 20 years, where we really... Um, kind of had a situation like that come up but with the Pelosi visit coming up um the you know will we back down on that or will we decide it's just smarter not to push that now we're obviously um strengthening a number of alliances throughout the Pacific and so it's it's interesting timing um I'm not I'm not going to claim to know you know who has the advantage as far as timing as far as you know will these alliances be stronger in five years or are they as strong now as they're going to be will china be stronger in five years china's obviously trying to grow its navy you know does china wait to until it's got you know a stronger more experienced navy or do they decide to push this um issue now those are the things that probably a lot of uh military intelligence analysts are studying like crazy and losing a lot of sleep over and um, we'll just have to see how it plays out. But that's what I see happening with my, you know, what little research I can do. And um, all of it's clearly just public information and just my best guess on what is happening behind the scenes. So we'll see how that plays out. We'll see if uh, Speaker Pelosi gets more pressure to not go or if it, at this point we pretty much have to go. And um, And we'll see how the Chinese react to that and then as well how we react to their aggressive actions, which will probably be pretty aggressive. Okay, that was a lot on China. Let's move to Africa, or more specifically, Somalia. Somalia has uh, started making the news in uh, kind of a drip-by-drip drip fashion in the past few weeks, and I've been trying to get to it, but, you know, there's been bigger news. But let me let me bring up just a couple of things that happened. Um, first, there was an attack um, a couple of months ago that really highlights kind of part of the issue happening there, which um, there's a group there called Al-Shabaab. The group has been around since 2006, but um, started kind of making the news a little more so in about 2012. That's when it um, pledged allegiance to Al-Qaeda. And since then, um, the United States and probably some other nations, but definitely the United States as well as what's left of Somalia's government has been um, in some various um, levels of intensity of combat with Al-Shabaab. We've bombed them a few times. We've probably helped um, provide intelligence on operations against them, and they've definitely done their fair share of attacks against the uh, forces that we're trying to help in the area. So that's the background. But at any rate, in May, uh, they launched Al-Shabaab launched a large attack, and they actually killed more than 50 um, uh, soldiers from um, Burundi, and um, it was an impressively large, uh, sophisticated attack. 
it had three different sets of uh, suicide bombers using cars. So they used three different, ex you know, cars loaded with explosives. It was from multi-directions or multi-directional attack. It was well planned out. It was very well executed and it was obviously very successful. Um, and so that started bringing all this back to the uh, forefront. Um, obviously, Somalia is a country that's been devastated by famine and war for decades now. And actually, two weeks after that, um, President Biden approved the redeployment of some 450 American troops to Somalia. Um, I had mentioned that in a newsletter, gosh, weeks and weeks ago, and I didn't have time to find when I initially sent that out. But at any rate, I reported on that. It was kind of a small part of a newsletter. But um, the militants, Al-Shabaab, depending on where you read or what you believe, they control a lot of the southern and central part of Somalia. Some say, you know, 50%, some say 60, 70%. No one really knows, but um, it's a lot of land. And um, there's a a government in place that rules the capital Mogadishu and some of the provincial capitals of of Somalia, but um, Al Shabaab is a very large group, um, somewhere between you know many thousands of fighters. The Washington Post said five thousand to seven thousand. Just depends on who you believe. Um, no one probably really knows what the number is, um, and there are some groups that are allied with them and and pretend to be parts of them or have alliances with them, and there's just as well, criminal gangs. So it's kind of hard to decide on who you're counting as Al-Shabaab, but they're very strong, they're very powerful, and uh, they're increasingly getting some attention from us. This will probably be something that it'll be very easy for there to be mission creep, um, which is what happened in the 90s when the U.S. was uh, trying to assist peacekeeping efforts in um, Somalia. Uh, for you know, Everyone remembers the movie Black Hawk Down, um, or the book as well, which inspired the movie. But that all started initially with the U.S. You know, trying to support a peacekeeping mission there. Um, the, a Pakistani contingent took a lot of casualties after an attack from, at that time, uh, Muhammad Farah Adid. I'm not real sure what happened to him. I need to look that up sometime. But he was a big name back then. And um, so we ended up sending in Rangers, Delta Force, um, led to a massive firefight, quite a few casualties on our end. And um, that all started with just some basic mission creep from what initially was a peacekeeping um, type mission. And it's very easy for those to switch into something that's far more deadly and that quickly um, kind of sucks you in as a country and as a military. So, And it's a fine line because on the one hand, you, um, you know, you don't, on the one hand, you don't want to send a massive military to every small country that we're trying to help, you know, through tough times. But on the other, if you don't send enough forces, then um, you can essentially not have enough power there should something bad happen. And that's what happened in the Battle of Mogadishu. There just weren't enough American troops. And we were having to rely on peacekeeping forces to try to support us. And there's some chain of command issues. We didn't quite get the support we needed and it, it cost lives. So that's probably why, you know, the the Biden contingent, that was quite a few troops. I'm sure they're mostly just uh, training Somali forces and um, probably not too directly involved in too much. But uh, at any rate, definitely something to keep on your radar um, in case that starts to 
you know, grow into something bigger or uglier. One thing I did fail to mention earlier uh, in this little bit of monologue about Somalia was uh, the Economist did report that Al-Shabaab collects more tax revenue than the federal government currently does, according to their new president in Somalia. So he says that uh, Al-Shabaab has established a state within a state. So uh, I'd, I apologize. I'd meant to say that earlier, and it's definitely important. So this is no small ragtag force. And... Um, Anyway, all of this is something definitely to keep an eye on. All right, that's enough news. Um, we went almost 28 minutes, it looks like. Um, and I think, I feel like 20 minutes, 20, 25 minutes is like a right length. I'd love to hear back uh, some feedback from you guys on that. Do you want more? Is that about the right amount? And um, as I try to figure out the best uh, model here for what we're trying to do. So, but that's enough news for today. Um, Let's get to some motivation and wisdom. And as the longtime readers know, I'm always looking for some positive or good news out there. And with all the ugly fires that are constantly being reported, the drought, the heat wave, et cetera, and with all the talk of global warming and, you know, often we can feel we can feel pretty powerless to do anything against it. So I saw two news items that were at least a little bit inspiring. First was that um, uh, Ethiopia planted a record 350 million trees in 12 hours um, a few months ago, um, and back actually back in May, the country had mostly been deforested. So they're trying to plant small seedlings, and they got the a lot of people involved, a lot of the residents to volunteer. So they planted 350 million trees in 12 hours. So how amazing is that? And then um, on that same note. As part of a bipartisan bill, um, um, the U.S. is going to plant one billion trees over the next 10 years to, um, you know, help combat the destructive wildfires that have been burning down so much um, out west, especially. And also, you know, just to help, with, uh, you know, as we try to counter global warming. And if I can make one note on that, one political note, I guess, um, which I try to avoid, but, you know. I was raised really conservative as a hunter, etc. And the thing I have never understood for the life of me is why there isn't um, just more agreement on, um, you know, protecting green spaces, whether it's wooded areas, parks, etc. Um, that has always just driven me crazy that we somehow make that super political when I think it's pretty universal that most of us want as much, you know, green space preserved as possible. I know there's some friction between developers and folks who are trying to drill for oil, et cetera. But, you know, in the end, there's I think there's more agreement, even among the energy producing companies, that, you know, none of them want to create excessive damage, et cetera. But, you know, to me, taking care of the environment should be something that we're pretty much all on the same page on. And um, I think a lot of times the extremist on both sides of that issue push us apart when I don't think that's necessary. Um, I think we pretty much are all on the same page of trying to take care of the world and the land that we have as best we can. Okay, with that out of the way, here are some other motivational tweets worth sharing. The first one is from, um, he's actually a command sergeant major in the Army, uh, but he's a great guy to follow on Twitter. Uh, you can find him at at real patriot underscore seven or N M Curry. I've got him in the uh, episode notes. You can find the tweet. Always posting tons of motivation, and he's a great follow. 
but we'll start with uh, his for today. He shared a tweet that said, Hard things are put in our way not to stop us, but to call out our courage and strength. Um, and here's one, like I say, make sure you give him a follow. Uh, here's one from Inspired Motivation Quotes. Uh, quote, successful people aren't necessarily brilliant or talented or gifted. But they all have one thing in common. Each of them is highly motivated. That's what drives them to try harder, work harder, take action, turn dreaming into doing, stay motivated. So that was a great one. And then I wanted to share, these are all going to come, the next few from uh, Success Minded. I've got a link to them, but they're on Twitter. They're always posting you know, motivational stuff. First one is a, pos a positive mindset equals a positive life. Um, they had another good one I wanted to share that says, Never, ever forget who helped you while everyone else was making excuses. Uh, they also shared one. If you can spend eight hours a day building someone else's dream, you can spend one hour on yours. That was a great one. Um, they had one that said, uh, I wanted to share that said, uh, this week start affirming. The future has wonderful things in store for me. Obviously, affirmations are things that you repeat in your mind so that you can knock down some of the negative things that you often have running through your minds, if you're anything like me, at least. Um, and then finally, uh, from Success Minded, be the person you wish you could have been yesterday. Um, so those are some great ones. Wanted to share them. Hope they, you know, hit you the way they hit me. Definitely, if you're like me, it's always good to keep some positive things in your life to help balance out the negative stuff that we all deal with. And with that, that's it for this edition. You know, as a reminder, please be kind. Try your best to love your fellow Americans. We need to pull this country together, and that starts with all of us. So I always say that. I think I've said that from the very beginning, and I, I'm a huge believer that we got to come together as a country. And um, I think we can, all of us can do that by encouraging um, better dialogue and by just basically being better people and not supporting folks who are, you know, um, really destructive in their language when they talk about the other side. In the end, we have way more that, you know, unites us than divides us. This isn't a new concept or theme, and um, it's something I firmly believe. And as always, if you love what you're reading, you know, throw a couple bucks in the hat. You can subscribe below. That'll get you the Tuesday edition on Tuesday versus the small delay. It'll also help make this better, and uh, it's something I would definitely appreciate, but no pressure. Um, so thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out my books. I've got 11 of them, everything from military thrillers to police detective series to uh, basically great war novels um, from everything from World War II to Afghanistan. I love to write, so definitely check those out. And um, thanks again for tuning in, guys. I really appreciate it. I'll see you guys Friday.